Welcome back to part two of our interview with James Smith from the Popular Pod Show. Uh, in this part of the episode, we'll be looking at the Canadian truckers movement and moving on to discuss more relevant details about populism, Corbynism, and where things are likely to go in the future. We hope you enjoy the program. You've spoken to a guy we've also interviewed, uh, yeah, uh, Gordon. Gordon McGill, uh, uh, re- uh, recently uh, uh, banned for too much truth on Twitter. Um but um, the, the truckers' protest has drawn out again like this rather uh, tiresome canard from like many supposedly Marxist groups in Canada, certainly, and the US, and most likely here as well, that this is somehow some sort of uh, fascist movement, white supremacist movement, misogynist movement, you name the ist, they are it, apparently. And this has been, this reminded me, of course, of like all the claims that were made about people who voted for Brexit, um, also the Yellow Vest movement in the in France, and also even to an extent, I mean, the attempt to paint um, Corbyn as an anti-Semite as well had certain similarities to this. And so, but why do you think specifically with regard to like these uh, uh, populist movements that uh quite often like so people who are supposedly advocates for like the scientific analysis of marxism keep like throwing out these rather very very um incoherent and uh, always unevidenced um insults regarding like the supposedly fascist or far right nature of them yeah well i i think that um there is this this situation where if somebody is economically um, right-wing and socially right-wing, then we know what to do with them. We know that they're a, a normal conservative. But if somebody is um, culturally um, conservative and economically uh, left-wing, then suddenly they become an unacceptable fascist, um, which rather sort of raises the question of which was the unacceptable um, part um, for, for a, a, a lot of the liberals who, who kind of make this uh, make this analysis um, yeah I, I, I mean it, it does sort well it doesn't bewilder me but it disappoints me that uh, people on the left can go through what what we went through with the Corbyn ordeal that uh, Bernie supporters can uh, have sort of received a, a similar sort of structure of of, of attack, um, you know, taking the, the kind of minor example um, of, of of somebody who, who's whatever saying whatever unacceptable thing and taking them to be representative of the whole guilt by association um the the kind of uh, application of of whatever incohate um ngo approved uh uh, uh, terms uh, uh, as as a form of, of of criticism we've gone through that on the left um, and the kind of absolute lack of imaginative generosity in thinking that maybe some other political groups might also be subject to the same treatment um, is uh, is unreal. Um, th- there's also a sort of a problem, I think, in in the uh, you guys have, have have covered this from various points of view on on your show but a problem in the analysis of class on um the the sort of millennial left really that's that emerged since 
the financial crisis and since 2015. Um, a, a kind of way in which we, we're happy to think of um, a, a graduate who's working in Starbucks or somebody who's a, an intern for a media company. We're happy to think of them as people who have uh, some interests in common with uh, what 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 there'd be a kind of consensus that you know a consensus working class as it were um, we're happy to think of them as having interests in common but as soon as somebody is a small business owner or somebody is not a kind of conventional employee um, suddenly you know we, we we start saying oh well they're they're, they're the petty bourgeoisie. They're, they're always vulnerable to fascism. And, uh, of, of course, there can't be anything um, radical or, or, or anything that we want to get behind in their protests. And, and that's been a big part of the, uh, of the critique of the truckers, really, that, that uh, a, a, this kind of desperate sort of desire to prove that they're not properly working class and therefore their thoroughly material demands uh, can be... Um, dispatched with. Uh, Zizek's got this joke, I, I never argue with my girlfriends because as soon as uh, she argues with me, she's no longer my girlfriend. And I think that sort of summarizes the, the, the a lot of the kind of left relationship to um, w- workers. Uh, the, the, the workers are, are not socially conservative because as soon as uh, they say anything socially conservative, they're no longer workers. We're, we're going to find out that they've got some sort of boat dealership or whatever around the back. Um, the, 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 the idea that it's meaningful to kind of um, equivocate and pick holes in the claims of the truckers to be working class in the, in the face of um, these vaccine mandates, which with all the will in the world, I, I just can't imagine believing that they are, that they are justified. I cannot imagine believing that um, you should be able to force somebody to take a vaccine on on the on the threat of taking away their livelihood. Um, that that's kind of the point where my materialist analysis fails, and 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 I I, I just can't really believe that people think that, that <laughs> think that that's okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, whenever I see people sort of listing like, oh yeah, th- th- this guy is a Nazi and he's at the uh, protest, or oh this uh, this donor was is is some sort of right wing billionaire, I-, I just want to say, is it right or isn't it? You know, <laughs> is what they're asking for right or not? Never yeah. mind all all, all all of this, um, which is a total distraction. Um, you know, if if it is true that and and it's not, but if it was true that um, everybody who is, um, you know, critical of vaccines or, or has been critical of lockdown is tendentially right-wing or far-right, it, it would only be because no one on the left has, tu- has, has, has properly touched it or prof- properly offered to kind of represent the, the totally reasonable demands and qualms and worries and, and uh, objections that people have. Well, yes, and I, I think, um, yeah, I historically speaking, I think it's very ironic to hear this kind of critique from, for instance, the Communist Party of Canada, who have dismissed the entire thing as a petty bourgeois, um, I don't know, reaction. Yeah. 
Um, because those making their critique are petty bourgeois themselves. There are a variety of different professionals uh, most of the time. Yeah. But um, the, the, and the point of um, kind of isolating people in this protest or the leadership of this protest as petty bourgeois should not be to a priori dismiss their claims. It's to understand the political horizon possible from this movement number one, right? I, I think, in my opinion, it's just, it's a mode of um, understanding the political potential of this and understanding um, its position vis-a-vis the working class. And by definition, the petty bourgeoisie is a wavering class. It can also join in uh, with proletarian uh, struggles if the proletariat offers it enough support, which, in my opinion, it has with regard to these vaccine, to these anti-mandate um, protests. Uh, but as you're saying, yes, like it's just another way too of avoiding assessing the claim for itself, assessing the demands for themselves. Does this demand yeah. make sense? Is it relevant to the health and well-being and the power of the proletariat? No one is really asking or assessing the demands when it comes to its relevancy to the proletariat, or they'll make some kind of nonsensical demand um, conclusion and saying, oh, the proletariat deserves a safe workplace, and that's why we have to force everyone to take a vaccine that doesn't stop transmission. It's um, it's quite absurd. <laughs> yeah, I, and I mean, this is another kind of way, thing I mean by saying I'm a I'm a 2017 man. Uh, in, in 2017, it was very easy to speak to small business owners uh, and to uh, contractors um, about the the left's program. I mean, John McDonnell commissioned this whole report called Alternative Models of Ownership, which was all about um, the the reality that small businesses are always in this kind of hopeless competition with um, big capital that if it if it does tolerate them for a while, it's only so it can uh, buy them out. Um, the, the, the 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 petty bourgeoisie is is absolutely kind of preyed upon and um, uh, gets a bad deal out of the stage of neoliberalism that we're at. So um, all those ideas about community wealth building and about saying to um, about using the kind of spending power of local government to say you're not going to um, local government isn't going to um, pay these kind of big um, international firms for uh, the resources it, it needs. We, we're not going to have this kind of outsourcing culture anymore. Instead, the spending power of local government is going to be dedicated to incentivizing local businesses that pay a living wage, that have green credentials, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, we're going to give you the loans. We're going to uh, give you that kind of um, guaranteed custom. And Local employers that are receptive to local needs uh, are going to flourish again. There was an offer there directly to small business owners, uh, and there was a kind of recognition that um, it's not a choice between, you know, either siding with the the, the pure proletariat or uh, 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 with with ca- with the embodiment of capitalism. Actually, wh- where we're at now is a, a split in capitalism between uh, a kind of encroaching um, form of neoliberalism, which is totally monopolized and totally uh, uh, digital and and, and, um, 
you know, is the is the sort of the the bug man fantasy versus something that still kind of has some trace of local specificity and and uh, and, and 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 diversity of of of, of ownership, um, and so that there was the the beginning of a of, of of a theory or an argument or an offer there, and it was possible to make that in in, in campaigning. What's happened since has been a kind of um, you know a, a revolt. The, the revulsion of petty bourgeois nationalism that, that coded um, a lot of that anti-Brexit drift that happened over the couple of years following 2017. Uh, after that, what happens next? Oh, everyone says they've learned their lesson over over Brexit, but then the next thing is uh, you, you, you can't criticise the looting and burning of small businesses during the Black Lives Matter protests uh, because, you know, those small businesses were probably exploitative and racist anyway. So already we've kind of drifted from any kind of sense of there being a kind of anti-neoliberal coalition there. Next, no lockdowns, you know, this kind of ultra pro lockdown um, uh, situation where, yeah, basically taking money from, uh, the petty bourgeoisie and sending it, sending it on upwards, um, and uh, and and finally, yeah, in in, in this kind of tiring of, um, of of the truckers as uh, as as you know, secretly motivated by white supremacy. The, the the stage, you know, when you when you lay out the stages like that, it really looks to me like a sort of drifting from any kind of idea of a kind of a. a, a a principled coalition that recognizes um, where capitalism is and what kind of form of uh, coalition of resistance could exist, and instead um, is the, the left basically cheering on uh, the, the kind of the, the liberal side of the billionaire class and, and hating on um, these uh, these petty bourgeois chuds. Well, as we'll put it. <laughs> I mean, I, I think certainly. Um, there's some truth to what you're saying. I, I disagree. So I don't think there is any possibility to do a successful politics via mm-hmm. a coalition with the petty bourgeoisie per se. I do think, of course, that if the petty bourgeoisie can be brought on side via a proletarian project um, or a proletarian mass support, like this is the, the history of social democracy in Europe, after all, mm-hmm. a bunch of petty bourgeois led parties, but with a mass, a real mass working class base that brought them to power election after election. And due to the, you know, the Russian revolution and a whole bunch of other um, uh, elements within global politics after the uh, Russian revolution and after World War II, especially, uh, the working class was able to extract a whole slew of success of, uh, of benefits from that. But of course, the dialectic is limited. Um, I think that the the problem with the petty bourgeoisie is that, um, so uh, if I can quote Trotsky, uh, the petty bourgeoisie can only follow the worker when it sees in him the new master. And so you you need a party that is looking seeking to empower the proletariat, seeking to give leadership to that class, and then the petty bourgeoisie will kind of see them. Because as you say, it's true, the petty bourgeoisie as a mass, and this is something Trotsky said as well, 
is oppressed by the by by capital. They have a, a a very distrustful relationship with capital, and capital will take one section of it and use them toward their means. So right now they're using the scientists and the doctors and the bureaucracies uh, in which these these uh, professions are embedded to further their um, their COVID-19 protocols, et cetera. But, um, you know, that might switch up in the next, in whatever is coming next with the upcoming financial crisis, right? So now perhaps yeah. the small business owners will now find um, their place as, uh, as, 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 as tools for the bourgeoisie and whatever project they need to pursue next, political project they need to pursue next. Could be could be some Bonapartist regime, who knows? But mm. like, yeah, so I, I just think I would, um, I would kind of relocate the analysis and, kind of start from the point of um, empowering the proletariat, because that is really how there's only two classes in the society that make politics. It's the bourgeoisie or the proletariat. Those are the only ones that make politics. And so, um, and, but the petty bourgeoisie likes to believe that it's the one leading the way. That's, that's the belief that they tend to gain, which is problematic because then they think, yeah. for instance, that, you know, all of these wonderful COVID-19 policies is just the science and they don't see the, uh, the politics undergirding it all. Yeah, no, no, I, I I think that's quite right. So moving then to um, a look at the looking, casting our eyes into the future, so to speak. Um, first of all, let, let's let's look at the the question of the the terms uh, left and right, for a, for instance. The the I think the last uh, couple of years, especially on the COVID restrictions, has led to like furious exchange of views, mainly over social media over like uh, what constitutes like a uh, the left and right position like is the as we've been discussing James this sort of stereotypical left response to like Boris Johnson is like that he's some sort of uh, heinous like far rightist who's planning a genocide uh, same was said of Trump or that the uh, or some people uh, involved in like anti mandate anti lockdown protests have been of course saying that like this is a this is a way of uh, smuggling um, uh, socialism in via uh, the covid regime or uh, this is the, uh, hmm. the various people are the agents of the chinese communist party um, as if they as if the chinese communist party wasn't involved in a capitalist project um, but the the sort of complete collapse and emptying out of meaning of these terms left and right uh does raise the question of like how useful are these now as frames of understanding given where we are what would be what would be your overview on that yeah um i i think i i wouldn't want to dispatch them altogether um i mean not not least because there are plenty of places in the world where they still do have a lot of explanatory power, um, and it, it may just be that we're, we're in quite a, a peculiar moment where they don't seem to uh, describe that much. I, I mean, just just for example, that as 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 intriguing as the kind of rise of a of a dissident right within the Republican Party in America. Um, as intriguing as as that is, I mean, for, for all its kind of claims to uh, being a, a, a workers' project, that, that they simply don't believe in trade unions as a uh, as an agent. So they, they they they've they've got no kind of theory of how to build working class power. So although it seems like the, the, we're in a moment where uh, one can feel that the the right is right about some things and the left is 
write about others, and that there are some things that neither is right about. Um, I, I'm I'm not sure how useful it would be to dispatch them totally. That said, it is quite an uncanny experience to find people who, in the the Corbyn and Bernie period, one you know despised and 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 saw as just the the kind of worst kind of uh, liars and, and political enemies and and so on. To find suddenly that this COVID issue has so like thrown the cat among the pigeons and and has been so unpredictable in terms of who's going to think what about it that you end up just having to kind of let go of those old resentments and be willing to kind of make the case alongside whoever's willing to make it. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's undoubtedly the case that COVID has been one of those kind of events with a capital E that has... Um, sort of brought out the real kind of contradictions inside left and right positions. Um, And, I mean, the the other way in which one starts to kind of doubt the um, efficacy of of the the left-right categories right now um, is is just in the sense that um, we, we got so used in that kind of left populist time to saying to accusations about, you know, the standard right-wing accusations about what the left is. Uh, we got so used to saying, oh, no, that's that's just liberals. The real left thinks this. Well, uh, it, it, the, 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 what you could point to and say that's the real left has, has dwindled and, and, and shrunk and disappeared so much that m- maybe we are at a point where, you know the if the, the people who think they're the left and the people who the right think is the left and the people who actually have some institutional power and the people who are actually kind of driving the way things are going if they call themselves the left then uh maybe we've got to say yeah okay this is a kind this is a kind of leftism i i, I sort of wonder if um the identity that the biden's democratic party has cultivated for itself um I wonder how useful it is to impulsively say, oh, no, they're not left at all, when um, there obviously is a kind of, uh, there is a a real sort of polarisation going on in American politics anyway. It it just so happens that the, the Bernie kind of people are almost totally irrelevant to it. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I've, I guess I've sort of taught myself into defending the idea that left and right <laughs> aren't that useful as categories right now. But I, I, in, in the long run, you know, I think they'll be back, put it like that. Yeah, I mean, the um, the total sort of Im- implosion of um, leftism into becoming like the cliche that the um, the people on the right say it is. So, yeah. like, uh, when people on the right would say for years and years, oh, uh, well, you know, you um, the, the you socialists just want to have everything nationalized. You want to have the state dictating to everybody what they should do, where they should go, how many meals a day they should have. Um, like, you, as you were saying, James, you spend years saying, well, no, that's not real, uh, or it's yeah. somebody else. And then a whole bunch of people you used to you used to count as comrades turn around and say, actually, no, that is what it is, and we we want it through the COVID regime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's there's been a lot of 
there's been a lot of those sort of embarrassing moments really over the past couple of years where exactly the stereotype that that you've always defended the virtue of the leftover has turned out to ultimately just be true um again we, you know the things things move fast and in in britain it's kind of interesting to see that around when it seemed like we were going to go back into lockdown over christmas very quickly, some of the kind of more prominent left commentators sort of changed their tune and the, the established left line suddenly became, we don't want to sleepwalk into a biopolitical state, uh, <laughs> but I'm making this argument in a non-fascist way, unlike everyone else who makes the argument. So there was this awkward sort of change of, of tack. And yeah, now now that we're presumably not going to go into, now that there's presumably not going to be further lockdowns, and now vaccine mandates are defeated as well, um, these people will claim to have always thought that way. So I, I mean, and that's before we sort of take into account the um, the, the fact that it seems like uh, ahead of the midterms, the Democrats seem to be kind of trying to like drop this hot potato of maximum. <laughs> COVID measures <laughs> as well. So, you know, like I said at the at the start of this conversation, like it, it, everybody is going to claim that they were anti-lockdown and, and anti-vaccine mandates uh, at, at some point. Um, so, yeah, th- this this moment of authoritarianism, I mean, it's going to have to, it, it has had and will continue to have absolutely dreadful and appalling effects and the power grab that it is represented is not going to go away, uh, just like the Patriot Act uh, never did, just like Prevent never did. Um, but the, the people concerned will change their, will change what it is they're willing to say in the open. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like your working through this left right thing, because it's something I've been thinking a lot about too, since now the truckers are being in Canada being um, accused of being right wing, far right wing. And it's just very odd to me because, I mean, for a whole variety of reasons, but primarily because they're seeking to put forward their interpretation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and how these mandates infringe upon them. And of course, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was uh, kind of put into place by the true, the first Trudeau government, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who is, uh, yeah. of course, a Liberal Party superstar. So he was not considered left wing. So I, I, but I think that, you know, um, if we understand right and left, I kind of bring them into a modern context away from their original meaning, which arose with the French Revolution, uh, where the bourgeoisie would categorize themselves as against the monarchy or, you know, being right wing, uh, or sorry, with the monarchy being right wing against the monarchy being left wing. Um, it could come to mean just, you know, are you against authoritarianism? Are you for more democracy, more, you know, libertarian, let's be, that's so, so to speak, or are you not? And it's just come, it's, it, the, the reality is that just those who have traditionally been perhaps on one side of this question with regards to other prominent political questions of the day are now finding themselves for a whole variety of reasons on the other side. And so... You know, yeah. it's confusing everyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess part, part of the problem is that um, right now, tendentially, it is people on the people who are actually on the right and people who are, you know, basically basically apolitical and therefore in today's hyper politicized times look like they're on the right if you're a liberal journalist or, or, or liberal academic or left activist. Um, that, that it, 
it's those people who have taken the anti-authoritarian stance in relationship to COVID. But I guess part of the problem is that um, it, it, with both sides, I think it's it, it's the problem of getting people to apply that instinct to the stuff that they don't instinctively want to apply it to. I, I mean, in, in Britain, you, there, there's a there is a kind of massive left critique of all of these um, very authoritarian measures that um, the Tory Party has put through in terms of. Um, uh, criminalizing journalists, criminalizing protesters, um, uh, expanding the the border regime, um, and uh, uh, making it more difficult to convict the the police and 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 uh, and secret uh, services and so on. Um, but people who criticize that aren't willing to connect it to the COVID regime. They're not willing to sort of countenance the fact that it, it is COVID that has allowed those measures yes. to be kind of waved through and that COVID is going to be the kind of ideal excuse for um, for applying a lot of that legislation. And similarly, you know, the, the, the kind of old Tory spectator types are very willing to criticise the authoritarianism of COVID, but don't expand the analysis to those other things. So we're in a situation with um, the nominal left and right, where it's like um, you know, like like let, let's get a classical reference um, in tribute to our current prime minister. You know, Ulysses tied to the mast, uh, and uh, the, the 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 oarsmen have all got their ears blocked with with wax, so they can't hear the siren song. Ulysses can hear the siren song, but he can't act on it because he's tied to the mast. Mm. Um, it, it, we're kind of like that. It, it, nobody's able to kind of like join up the, the kind of picture. Nobody's able to kind of recognise that um, like the, the authoritarianism that they, they don't like is connected to the authoritarianism <laughs> that they do like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, yes, uh, this universal point of view can only come from the universal class, of course, the proletariat. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I, I think it's a very astute, I think this gets to what I've been struggling with. Like I just, and I find that the, 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 the switches are so quick and so sudden, like, you know, you have the same defund the police people who have now called for the army to carpet bomb the truckers like in ottawa like it's it's just like yeah. do you not remember what you were saying like just like five months ago like yeah <laughs> and in, in a sense that that is what i find admirable about the um the truckers protest that it, it's very interesting to compare it to black, black lives matter where black lives matter was a combination of a kind of demand for like a very specific thing defund the police which meant different things to every different person who used the phrase. Um, uh, you know, oh, it, it doesn't really mean defund the police. <laughs> yes, it does. It means ab ab abolishing prisons. And stuff. <laughs> so this kind of specificity of demand that was completely vague in itself and what people really meant was change everything about people's identities and how they relate to race. So actually this impossible demand that could never be satisfied so would always require a cast of trainers and influencers and thought leaders who, who would train you in how you would kind of fulfill this project of, of, uh, of 
the right kind of abolition of race and not the wrong kind of abolition of race. <laughs> what I like about the trucker thing is that, like, okay, there's all kinds of, you know, I've I got an uncle who's a, who's a lorry driver and, and there's there's not such a, it's not a long country. And so it's, a, it's harder to kind of get into that long haul mentality that you have in North America. <laughs> but, you know, even that amount of time alone, you know, you're going to think some wacky things. And a lot of those guys think wacky things at that protest. Um, but there is a sort of discipline of just demanding one thing. Yes. Uh, and that, I think, is a model for politics. It's the opposite of – so it, it, it departs from Occupy, demand nothing, but <laughs> just by your presence transform society. It departs from Black Lives Matter, demand one thing, which secretly means a million different complicated things that um, you're never going to quite get right – it, it departs from all of that by saying, like, here's a bunch of guys who probably have all kinds of political views, um, but what they're asking for is an incredibly specific thing, which, like, you just look insane. I, You would look insane if you you disagreed with. The only reason it doesn't look insane to agree with vaccine mandates is that that kind of um, – you know, that, that kind of intellectual class agrees with it and so is closed ranks and, and yeah. no one ever defends it. Uh, yeah. But everybody just acts as if it, it goes without saying that, uh, that it's justified. I do, I do sincerely think there is um, a very interesting sociological perspective to this as you're, you're highlighting your relative who's a, a lorry driver and uh, the kind, I think it does shape a certain character, you know, like mm. it's something I've noticed amongst the driver, the, the, the truckers I've spoken to at the protest is that they're all like very friendly, very easy to speak to. Some of them do have idea, like some of them have conspiratorial ideas, like, but they're not like weird about it. They're not like overbearing about it. Um, you know, unlike the professionals you speak to who have very, very strong ideas, let's say, about <laughs> how yeah. to like not get COVID-19. The, the, the professional class has turned politics into entertainment in these recent years, and um, but then resents it when um, <laughs> normal people do as well. And, and I think that's always been kind of misunderstood or, or, or underestimated, really. The, the extent to which, you know, people take pleasure in their in their in their politics people take pleasure in their kind of little idea and they take pleasure in the idea that they're going to piss you off or bemuse you by expressing it or saying it <laughs> um and and yeah that, that's that's really underestimated in 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 all this so yeah in short i i do think that there is potential for some sort of some sort of populist project in a in in a project like this um Precisely because uh, the participants have been disciplined enough to, like, not make it a big deal. You know, no one's sort of saying, oh, yeah, and, okay, first of all, do the vaccine mandates and then free all the kids in the subways. Like, no one's even, no one's, like, saying that. Like, if they want that or think that, then they've they've got the discipline to not, like, have all these fucking boutique add-ons. And and that's got to be the future of any kind of um, anti-systemic politics, resisting the add-on. Yes, I I think that's right. I I think that is part of the reason why this whole thing in Canada and beyond whatever has gotten the support it has, because it is narrowly focused as much as the the media and the political class would like to depict it as a movement who's trying to overthrow the government. They're not 
trying to do that. Um, their demand is drop the mandates or resign. So that's not the same thing as overthrowing the government. Like anyone can call the governor general in Canada and ask for her to um, force a non-confidence vote. I don't exactly know the parliamentary, the parliamentarian um, or parliamentary uh, process, but something like that. Um, so yes, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's, that is very true and very interesting and how something specific and narrow can have such a large impact. And I think that's kind of a, you know, usually when, when leftist politicians and stuff campaign, it's kind of a whole soup of different promises that are very far reaching, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alex, you want to jump well, in? Well, I will, I will monopolize the, the final question, James, by turning it back towards perhaps a, a slightly depressing subject, but um, a man who's been the elephant in the room in this discussion so far, so to speak, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, and um, his uh, tenure as Labour Party leader and where it's going. Um, the Starmer leadership um, clearly represented, as you've said in uh, multiple times over the course of our discussion, like a catastrophic uh, defeat for the Labour left and the wider um, pro- wider left projects and also, I would argue, the trade unions as well, given the state of his uh, platform, his policy platform. Mm. But um, do you see this purely as like a, a back-to-the-90s Blairite restoration project for a start? And is there any life left in the, in the Corbyn group in the Labour Party as well? I mean, I listened to a very interesting interview you did with Laura Smith, for instance, who and Laura Pidcock, who seemed to think uh, that there was still some potential in there. But what would be what would be your take on the Starmer leadership and any potential left in the, the Labour Party as a vehicle? Well, um, yeah, let, uh, let's do the positive first of all. Um, I, I, I think that Corbynism has left a bit of a mark there there is a there is a trace of some of those policies um in the mix especially on insourcing i mean rachel reeves is just a a terrible reactionary and and when she was in the ed miliband shadow cabinet and and the the main thing she was memorable for was saying that labor would be even more sadistic to benefit claimants um, than the Tories were being. And that that was saying something at the time. Um, And today she she does kind of pay lip service to uh, the sort of insourcing uh, um, economic policies I I was describing. Okay, justice done. Um, It is a a Blairite... um, kind of resurrection but the thing is the not even the blairites are blairites anymore uh tony blair was actually charismatic and drastically popular and okay that was probably a a bad thing for the the country and a bad thing for the world but that you could you can sort of see why people went for it whereas none of that is true of keir starmer the other crucial thing about New Labour is quite how shallow it was. And anything you could point to in terms of a kind of, you know, an example of something they did that was progressive or did help people, anything that you could kind of raise as an example of something that would offer some mitigation for the 
advance of marketization that they oversaw, um, and, and and you know, which is not to mention that the, the the appalling and evil wars. Um, all of that was just snuffed out overnight as soon as they left office with the applause of the New Labour people themselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, anybody who defends New Labour uh, today from a progressive point of view, oh, at least they achieved this, at least they got waiting times in the NHS down, they're doing more than the actual protagonists ever did. Who, who, as soon as uh, David Cameron was in, they all acted like he was one of them. Um, so B- Blairism itself changed on on Blair's departure and then certainly on Gordon Brown's departure uh, to a position of just complete agreement with whatever uh, the Tories happened to be doing at a given time. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of weird play in which, excuse me, the... Um, uh, you know, Tony Blair is, I gather, meeting with Starmer, and, and the, there's been some briefing about the Tony Blair Institute uh, using some of its blood money to make up the shortfall in union funding. Peter Mandelson is is there as an advisor. Even that is a kind of like bizarre retread, kind of an awful you know, seeing some sort of awful tribute band because it was a running <laughs> joke in the New Labour years that Peter Mandelson was always in some scandal of self-enrichment and having to resign and then he'd be back. Well, the scandal that's occurred in the interim is his friendship with um, with with Jeffrey Epstein yeah. after he'd been convicted of child sex <laughs> trafficking and, and now he's back. Uh, everything about this kind of connection to New Labour is not like some return to 1997 with all of its, you know, pluses and minuses. It is New Labour, but it's the New Labour people as they are now, even worse, even more drenched in in, in blood and God knows what else. Um, so that that is disturbing, to say the least. Um, and then we get to um, Sir Keir himself, who um, was the... Um, the ch- the chair of the Crown Prosecution Service. He he was the the chief prosecutor in the country, um, the guy who essentially decided what the police were to investigate and what they weren't. And you know, you, there's been so many articles uh, t- t- detailing that the extent to which every decision the um, service made on his watch just always was in defence of the British state and always in defence of the establishment. And uh, that needn't necessarily be Keir's um, idiosyncratic um, instincts and judgments. Even if he was the most pure-hearted socialist in history, um, that job in itself should be disqualifying for uh, being the head of the the labour movement. As it happens, a lot of the decisions are pretty dodgy. And I'm sure we're going to find things out about the, I don't know, the the opportunities and incentives that came his way during his time in that high establishment role that that today inform his conduct as labour leader. So, yeah, we, we've got a situation where the Labour Party is just an extraordinarily reactionary 
creature. And the tragedy is that Corbyn supporters put him there. Corbyn supporters saw him as the kind of professional-looking, respectable haircut, pro-Remain um, guy who who would you know is is a you know a nice a nice man who will reflect kind of what the left wanted in the Corbyn years, but will do it professionally. A completely apolitical outlook, uh, uh, which kind of betrays the the real shallowness of of the, the whole Corbyn project that ultimately it it had no understanding whatsoever of the capitalist state and you know what somebody who had been one of its kind of crucial figures um, would end up doing if you handed them a political party so yeah the, the Keir Starmer leadership is is an appalling disaster an, an insult and even though Rebecca Long Bailey was God bless her not an impressive uh, candidate you should have just voted for her for God's sake because it, it, it was it was the same kind of gesture as voting for Corbyn in 2015 you didn't think he was going to be prime minister but you did think he could at least uh, block off some of like the worst tendencies of of uh, the British elite. Um, within that, the further disappointment is the complete collapse of the Socialist Campaign Group, which is the the kind of the, the nominal radical left within the Labour Party, which. Um, as it, it was formed in the early eighties, around the time of Tony Benn's um, uh, deputy leadership challenge and an attempt to kind of pull the Labour Party in a leftward direction uh, to, to provide a, a kind of a real alternative to Margaret Thatcher. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was a long-standing kind of core member of that. Um, during his leadership, it became a sort of way that new MPs could um, kind of maybe, you know, get promotions and, and, and get ahead. And, and since... Uh, since Corbyn's defeat and then since his ejection from the Labour Party, those these people, you know, they they, they want to mimic the squad, um, which Ooh. is in itself a, a, a dubious ambition, um, and it you know it's it's just a sort of shit English version of that. <laughs> um, the, these people have offered no leadership whatsoever uh, from this to this movement, this genuine movement that they were handed by Corbynism, and you're almost relieved that they've shown such little leadership because if they had showed leadership, it would be even worse because all of their opinions are, are bad and all yeah. of their instincts are totally opportunistic and they've they've learned nothing through this entire ordeal. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Labour Party is a very, very depressing sight and even the people who, in whatever the the wider left who who does have the same criticisms as me, they're all obsessed still, obsessed with it, and obsessed with Keith, and obsessed with you know monitoring it and following it and criticizing it. When you know even that is part of the same pathology, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, I mean, it's even the hashtag Starmer out, which people who are nominally in other political parties will use. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. you're you're not in that party. Why? If you think he's destroying it, why do you want him out? 
Yeah. It's yeah. like the um, it's like the Labour Party is a, a sort of gas giant which pulls various uh, smaller objects into its orbit. Like it can't uh, that are on the nominally on the more radical left trying to escape it, but they all keep circulating around it. Um, I mean, on Starmer himself. I mean, I when I was in the civil service, I was in the trade union side and like i met enough senior civil servants to recognize like what their only real skill is which is recognizing what the guy above you wants to hear and providing it (laughs) and that's what keir starmer struck me as straight away there's a guy whose talent has been his whole career okay well you know i am now expected to do this i will do it and he probably doesn't even think about it he just does it he recognizes the demands of the people above him in the chain and now the people above him in the chain are very senior uh, state bureaucrats and the ruling class themselves. So he, he's providing them, he's taking the form demanded of them, which is completely extirpate Corbynism, um, you know, alienate the unions to the degree where, like, they'll start talking about, again, like withdrawing funding, whether they do, that's another question. And then um, staging a series of symbolic fights with a shattered and largely useless left, uh, to sort of tickle the fancy of uh, uh, more sort of solidly establishment figures in the commentariat, and hope to hope that the Tories um, continue to sort of stagger around in a directionless daze to the point where he can get into a government in a sort of heinous coalition with the SNP, the Lib Dems, and whatever else gets yeah. turned up by the system. Um, but I'll my 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 thought on the the Blairite revival is that Blair also benefited from like a, a sustained upturn in British capitalism in terms of economic growth. So yeah. that was part of like what well, he didn't create it, but he, he inherited it and ran with it. That was part of like the sort of optimism beats that he was able to strike. The idea of the, the country's going forward, you know, um, it was always his constant refrain that he was modernizing Britain, marching forward. Like you say, it all disappeared into a mirage in the end. But um, Keir Starmer has nothing like that to offer. He can't. British capitalism has just not been in that phase since 2008. And even with everything that Cameron did, like he successfully restored asset prices, but the dynamism in the British economy is just not there. So well, the, the, the best that he, can, that he, Starmer, can ever hope for is like be getting in by default because the Tories make such a pig's ear of it. Um, or choose a leader who's even less, in, who's even worse than Johnson, um, or go into a gigantic economic crisis whereby he sort of comes to power by default. But in any way you look at it, like it's not going to be like 1997 all over again. It's just um, it's a very futile delusion. But it's one that the I think the certain elements of certainly the political class seem to be really stuck on. They're really stuck on the idea of Tony Blair. They're really stuck on the idea of that period. They can't seem to they can't seem to let go of it um, because I think it was a period when they themselves sort of kidded themselves into thinking that um, they had somehow overcome the contradictions of their own system um, for a while, um, only to be brought drastically down to earth. So yeah, I think Starmer's project is the restoration, but as you say, like I think he stands very little chance of actually pulling off what the people backing him think he's going to do. Yeah, it, it, there there are times when you just have to let these things play out, and, and 
and work on your own your own project's identity and and that's something the writer's always been very good at um the, the, uh, I read recently um, Lionel Trilling writing in the 1940s um, saying that uh, um, liberals are, are always surprised um, and reactionaries never are. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the right never actually loses because they, they just, they've always got a longer term kind of project and they can always just revert and regroup and and this wasn't the real battle anyway whereas every loss for both liberals and and the left and you know if there is a a non-liberal left i'm not sure i'm not sure what it is but you know it's it's always the it's always the complete disaster and they they just always become obsessed with whatever the minutia of whatever's happening in that one given moment um, and as far as the, the shit show of the Labour Party is concerned, um, you just shouldn't be paying it a second thoughts, really. Mm. Uh, Leila, did you have any final thoughts before we before we close out? Uh, no, I I don't want to insert my political thoughts on British politics with two British mm-hmm. guys on. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, but no, come um, back next week for a three hour episode on the NDP. <laughs> <laughs> There wouldn't be enough to talk about. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I guess I'll maybe as a closing thought, I'll just thank you, James, so much for coming on and sharing um, your very interesting perspective. I'm always uh, delighted with the breadth of British intelligentsia on the left side of the political uh-huh. spectrum. Very much more buried than what we have here in North America. <laughs> well, you kept me on for an hour and 50, so I, I'm flattered by that anyway. Okay, so James A. Smith from uh, Popular Pod. Uh, James, where can people find you if they want to learn more about what you and what you're doing? Oh well, um, you know, get get the Popular Show subscribed to on your podcast app, or you know, follow us on Twitter, the Popular Pod. Uh, you you can read my book if you like uh, other people's politics populism to corbynism uh, and also, uh, another book i wrote with a, a friend of mine mariah fannebecker called work want work labor and desire at the end of capitalism um and well that's probably enough to be getting on with okay so it only remains for me to say thanks again to james a smith and uh this has been red star radio thank you for listening bye